0: Welcome back to our final 2023 episode of Sepsis Voices with Dr Ron. I'm your host, Dr Ron Daniels, and I'm the founder and joint chief executive of the UK Sepsis Trust. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the findings of a brand new report, and it's published by the National Child Mortality Database Team, or NCMD team. Now, I contributed to this report as an author alongside other charities, including Meningitis Now and the Lullaby Trust. And the report was also peer reviewed by our ambassador, Melissa Mead, from her perspective as a bereaved mum. Now, Melissa, who's joining us on this podcast, tragically lost her son, William, to sepsis in December 2014 and knows all too well the human cost at the core of this report. And I'm also joined by Mandy Moores, whose identical twin daughters, Tilly and Lucy, offer us a really valuable, in fact, a uniquely invaluable insight into the long-term effects of sepsis on children. Thanks so much for joining us, Melissa and Mandy.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So let me just quickly detail before we, we start our conversation what this report found. Now, it used the National Child Mortality Base, and this is a, a unique data set on all child deaths in England. And it looked over a three-year period between April 2019 and March 2022, and it found a staggering 1,507 deaths related to infection. Now, it's important to reinforce that it didn't say all of these deaths were only caused by infection, but infection was related in more than 500 deaths in children each year. And it found that 15% of all child deaths over the last three years were also related to infection. Now, across this whole group of children who tragically died, so remember that's 1,507 of them, the clinical signs of sepsis were reported in 701 of these. And in 478 cases, this was the only clinical condition identified. And it may well represent the only clinical evidence of infection by the time the child presented to healthcare. Now, obviously, any child dying is. tragedy, particularly when it's avoidable. And these statistics are extremely shocking, but behind those numbers are human stories. Melissa, could you briefly tell us William's story for those very few people who might not be familiar with your case?
1: Sure. Um, So William was actually born a very healthy baby and had no underlying health conditions. Um, And after what was a protracted length of time with a cough, which we had been to the doctors for a number of times, um, he sadly died of sepsis. Um, But at the time, we didn't know he had sepsis and he had been sent home. And what actually happened to William was that he had an underlying pneumonia, which obviously gave way to sepsis. Um, And there were 16 failings in his care and four missed opportunities to save his life.
0: It's it's staggering, isn't it? And and I think one of um, one of the really significant things that you've been campaigning around is why a healthcare system isn't able to build the intelligence to understand that a parent presenting with a child on multiple occasions is in itself a red flag.
1: Absolutely, one hundred percent. I think you know the frequency of my visits um, were were closer, um, certainly towards his death and i'm going i'm presenting with the same thing every time he's got a cough it's not going away he's just not right something's not right um and you know we asked to see a different doctor as well just in case a different pair of eyes on him might have made a difference but unfortunately when multiple doctors tell you that it's just a virus and that you're a first time mum you believe it
0: i mean it is thankfully for for many of us unimaginable but it's now nine years since William died and, you know, he would have been 10 now. He would have been a happy, healthy 10-year-old child. You've been campaigning since that time and and I met you very shortly after um, you lost William and you've achieved huge things and we've achieved huge things together in terms of getting government attention to this issue of sepsis. Now, this report comes out. We've recently had a similar report from the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman telling exactly the same story as you have just told. How does that make you feel?
1: Um, Really disheartened. It feels like William's life didn't matter um, and that the same thing is happening time and time again. Um, and I I just feel like no one is listening to us it's certainly me as a parent no one is listening to me as a parent and it scares me it scares me that I would now take my my other son Arthur into the doctor and might get the same sort of response Um, whereas I have that knowledge now and others might not have that knowledge or be as tenacious to be able to to speak up a little bit louder and it's it's disheartening and it's it really scary yeah
0: it it really is and and these these families come to you they come to me they come to the broader charity and 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 time and time again it's exactly the same story we we just weren't listened to now you were involved in peer reviewing this report before its publication and it's actually published on the anniversary of William's death why is it important to you that it happened
1: um as you say, I was involved and in, in feeding back on this report, which was um, really sobering reading, if I'm honest. And when I knew the report was going to be published in December and to, to be published on the anniversary of his death, felt really quite poignant. Um, I, I thought it was a really good time to be able to speak up again, um, to speak up about his death, but to speak up for all of those other children that perhaps don't have a voice. Um, because we are their voice and their parents are their voice. So um, today, um, the anniversary of his death, it's, um, yeah, it's it's just, it's a really sad day, if I'm honest, and this is, makes for really sad reading. I, I,
0: yes, and I, I can only imagine, as I'm sure many of our listeners can only imagine. Um... A few weeks ago, we worked with um, bereaved mum, Maropi Mills, who lost her daughter Martha to sepsis when she was you know, just preteen. Um, and again, it was a very similar story. It was a, a mum who felt not listened to, despite being incredibly well-educated and articulate. She felt that the medical profession were not listening to her. And since that time, the the then health secretary, Steve Barclay, agreed that the NHS is going to bring in Martha's rule. Can you just explain to us a bit about Martha's, what Martha's rule is and whether and why you think that's important?
1: I think it's really important that we have a rule where we have the right to a second opinion, especially in an urgent care setting um you, we're all concerned when we visit healthcare especially with our children but there are times when we really know that something is really not right and if we're speaking up and we're saying something is just not right that is to be listened to and not disregarded by healthcare professionals because there is no one out there apart from William's dad that knew, that knew William like I did. And so when I'm saying he's just not right, that means he's just not right. And I might not be able to have the knowledge or the right terminology to say what exactly that is. Um, but if we have the ability to speak to someone else, then we are going to do it. And we should have the right to be able to do that. And I just feel incredibly sad that we are in a world where we're having to put in a rule to mitigate against us not being listened to.
0: Yeah, I, I I think you put it fantastically. It, it it is just sad that we have to do that. And I think, as a health professional myself. I you know, I have to concede here that that this can be challenging. There are something of the order of a million presentations to usually GPs with children with a fever each year in the UK. And of course, the vast majority of them have a, a fairly benign, self-limiting illness. Most of them don't need antibiotics. But among those people are these few hundred few thousand each year of children who have serious infection and i would just add from the perspective of the health professional to what you've just said we get it wrong we 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 are not infallible yes we're highly trained but we all have days when we perform well days when we perform less well and we have to understand that we're fallible and we get it wrong and uh, the only thing I would add to what you say, it would be a very brave and foolish health professional not to listen to a parent because they know their child better than any health professional. They've probably seen the mum well before. And if their sixth sense as a parent is tingling that something's seriously wrong, we absolutely have to listen. So, M- Melissa, what else? We've, we've talked about Martha's role. I, I've just talked about the importance of doctors and other health professionals listening to parents. What else do you feel needs to be done to reduce reduce the number of preventable sepsis deaths, particularly in children?
1: Um, I think it would be really, really important. I mean, the awareness around sepsis, certainly with the public, has has moved on significantly over the last uh, few years, certainly since since William's death. Um, But I think knowledge really is power with sepsis and unless that you know it exists and that you would be able to spot the signs of sepsis in the context of infection when you're feeling unwell especially when your child is feeling unwell is to be able to understand and convey that to a healthcare professional um, to say the word could it be sepsis and I think it's also as important to ask could it be sepsis to ask why it isn't sepsis if we're told it's not sepsis. Um, Because that's reassurance and not false reassurance. And what worse looks like in the event you are discharged home, um, what does worse look like? When should I come back? Um, Appropriate safety netting advice. So I think that's really, really important in the context of children who are unable sometimes to explain their own symptoms. yeah. So I would I, I would say that safety netting is really, really important. And also that reassurance around why it might not be sepsis in those
0: cases that you just mentioned. Uh, absolutely. And you talked about public awareness, which obviously is one of the three core functions of the UK Sepsis Trust to to empower people to act. But, you know, we do that in the way that you'd expect a charity to do that through forming partnerships, through press releases. But you're also telling your very personal story right now, this week, as we approach the anniversary of William's death on your social media channels at A Mother Without. Um, can you just talk about how, how that has been for you, um, how challenging it's been, whether you've found it cathartic and beneficial, and has it resulted in lots of people coming to you and, and telling you that they've acted?
1: Um, certainly. I mean, I have quite quite a large following on social media, as you mentioned and people because I'm just a mum. I'm I don't have an ulterior motive and I share very openly about my loss, about my grief, and how that is portrayed every day. And I, I share William because I have to share him somehow. It's my way of being his mum now. And I want to still be able to talk about him. So if I'm able to share his death. And that means that someone else might live. Um, I don't think there could be a better legacy for him. And as you mentioned, people do get in touch with me and they share their stories openly. And, you know, that's wonderful that we can, you know, as a charity as well, support them through their grief or, you know, support them. It's, it's just really important to be open, to share and, I think you know you can just reach just that one person that perhaps didn't hear or understand about sepsis and it it might just change change their life um i certainly wish i had seen it on social media nine years ago
0: yeah and uh, people might not realize melissa that as well as your your role as a as a uh, bereaved mum um as a mother without um you also actually work for us and and could you tell us uh, about one of the things you're involved in in terms of um uh, piloting getting leaflets into the hands of people in hospitals
1: absolutely um i I i think this this role at the charity is more more than a job to me it's it's sort of my life course now and it's great to be able to work on projects like the pilot that you mentioned we have several hospitals that are signed up and we're looking to sign up a few more over the coming months um, whereby all patients that are discharged from hospital with um, prescription bags or discharge summaries will be given one of our leaflets. And we are just about to um, roll this out in a, a leading children's hospital as well. Um, so that all parents um, who are discharged with their children from the hospital will be given a leaflet that covers the amber and red signs of sepsis and what to do and what what unwell looks like in their children. Um and I couldn't be more proud to be part of that project because it's about safety netting vulnerable people and also their families. And I think that's really, really important to be able to be part of
0: that, yeah, i I, I fully agree. and I, and I think we should give due mention to little Sam Morris, who died Absolutely. when when he was but a toddler. And the reason I say that is, his death prompted his mum to develop with the NHS in the southwest, um, a leaflet that that really underpins the leaflet that we're now distributing at a national level. So it is also a tribute to Sam, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. 100 percent. And I think Sam will be remembered as his little picture is on all of those leaflets that goes into the parents' hands that really need that information.
0: Yeah. Um, Melissa, just before we introduce Mandy, um, this is going to be a really tricky question but what would you tell you nine years ago now
1: it's that's a difficult question um because it's almost like um telling you not to listen to those that you trust the most mm. and i think i would probably just have, have put him in the car and taken him to hospital. Um, And screamed from the rooftops. But when you have a child and they're poorly, you in no way anticipate or think that they're dying. And I was just hoping that he would be better in the morning and I was told he'd be better in the morning. So what I would do is I would tell another me to go on the Sepsis Trust website, understand the signs and symptoms of sepsis and how they are they present in different ages of children and in the context of illness. And I would go and ask them to tell their friends about it as well, um, because I don't think there is any better advice than the advice of, of giving life.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I know that was difficult. For those that think I was being cruel with my question, uh, just to reinforce that, Melissa and I have collectively shed a tear on a number of occasions and discuss these things and and it's just felt that that the context and the personalization of that message is really important. Um, Melissa thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Um, your story won't be new to many but it will be new to some and I, I think almost on behalf of everyone listening your work has saved and is saving lives. So thank you for continuing to use William's story to push for change.
1: And um, no, thank you for listening and giving me a platform to be able to share him with you. His life really did matter.
0: Yeah, it did. Now, this report um, highlighted something that that really we're not covering with this episode of the podcast, but, but, but we're going to be talking about it with the media in, in due course. And it highlighted some things that we knew. Uh, firstly, that children under one were at significantly greater risk of infection-related death than than older children. Although that's not the same as saying that sepsis only affects children under one. Of course it's not. They're just more prone to it. Um, but it also highlighted something really troubling. And again, we've seen this in adults recently with a report from the University of Manchester that children from... Um, a South Asian or or an Asian British background or a black or black British ethnic background were at twice the risk of children from a white British background of dying as a consequence from infection. And children from uh, Pakistani families were at 2.5 times the risk. And another risk factor, which very sadly, it's quite difficult to fully unpick from um, minority ethnic groups, is that those living in the most deprived neighbourhoods, particularly deprived urban neighbourhoods, were twice as likely to die as those who lived in the more affluent neighbourhoods. So, there's an inequality here that we've got to address. I think we as a charity now, now that we have this intelligence, have an absolute duty to do all we can, and it is difficult, but we will try, we're a small team, to do all we can to reach vulnerable groups and to work very hard to make sure that messaging is designed to be accessible to people from those backgrounds and that it is delivered in exactly the right way so there's our charitable commitment to work toward that over the coming um, year now in adults we have known for a long time and we've talked for a long time about the impact on survivors. So among adults around one in five, or perhaps as many as one in four who develop sepsis will not survive. But among survivors, it's estimated that around 40% of adults who survive sepsis have life-changing disabilities persisting at one year after their original illness. And one of the second functions of the charity, alongside awareness, is to support people affected. So we have support nurses, whether it's um, an adult who's survived, whether it's someone who's been bereaved by sepsis, whether it's a child who's survived, and those resources are available to our listeners. Now, therefore, it's, it's not plain sailing. There can be a burden of survival. These after effects that I described, these sort of disabilities, can be in the physical space where it can range from something seemingly trivial, such as brittle hair, brittle nails, slightly loose teeth, through to disabling fatigue and even the loss of limbs. They can be in the cognitive space, which again can be relatively minor. It can be uh, some problems with short-term memory or concentration, attention spans, making a poor judgment in making decisions, through to very severe cognitive dysfunction, including not being able to return to work at the previous level of function and of course psychological and again these can be relatively mild from sleep disturbances the occasional sort of flashback or panic attack through to full-blown ptsd which occurs in around one in five sepsis survivors who've been through intensive care but what's not known is the effect of sepsis survival on children and someone who has got an incredibly unique insight on this it is Mandy. Now, Mandy's genetically identical twin daughters, Tilly and Lucy, um, uh, are really going to illustrate this point in, in a very stark way. Now, Mandy, firstly, thank you for joining us. Um, how, how long ago was it that we sat together with Tilly and Lucy on Breakfast Television talking about your experience? it was a long time ago wasn't
2: it, it was, I, I can't remember but they were they were little and they're not anymore so
0: yeah uh, yeah it was too long I, I think it I think it was 10 years I think it was yeah. give or take around, around 10 yeah. years so possibly yeah. even just before I met Melissa so yeah um yeah. could you briefly summarize because listeners won't be as familiar as your story mm-hmm. uh, uh, with your story as they are with Melissa's story could you summarize what happened to your family with sepsis
2: yeah of course. So um, Tilly and Lucy were born um, in 2008 in August and were four weeks early but otherwise healthy twins and didn't need long in special care. So the following Easter 2009 um, Tilly and Lucy are one of their, I've got four daughters and they all subsequently got chickenpox. So the eldest Emily followed by Poppy, followed by Lucy, and then Tilly was actually the last to contract uh, chickenpox. So we were stuck at home for a fairly long time. And um, it was pretty miserable, Um, but the others got through it without any complications beyond the odd infected spot. And then Tilly got an infected spot on her chest, which was sort of red and angry, but Lucy had had one, we'd been to the GP, got antibiotics and things had cleared up. So when Tilly's um, spot got infected, I wasn't overly concerned, took her to the GP um, and she was prescribed some antibiotics and and sent home. And then within hours of of getting home, she had deteriorated to the point of um, not feeding. She was unsettled um, and I just knew like Melissa said, I knew that there was something more wrong than just being chickenpox. So we went back to an out-of-hours doctor, who dismissed it as just being. She was just miserable because she had chickenpox. Um, didn't examine her, didn't take her out of the buggy. Just said you need to take the antibiotics and and go home. So I went home, Julie, and and again she was going downhill very rapidly. Um, hadn't produced a wet nappy for 24 hours, had got a sort of grey mottled skin, wasn't feeding. So we just bundled her in the car, took her to A&E, and she was admitted. But even once she was admitted, there was no mention of sepsis. Um, They sort of sat on her, really, for 48 hours, and she just carried on um, deteriorating. And then it was my husband who actually insisted. Over the bank holiday weekend, he said... um, that a consultant needed to come in in the night and um, to to see her because he wasn't happy that things were, were being done. And it was at that point she was then transferred to intensive care um, in Southampton, uh, 70 miles away, blue lighted. And we were told she might survive the journey. She was that unwell at that point. Um, and then we spent she spent 10 days in, in ITU uh, in, in an induced coma. And on many occasions, we were told that she might not pull through. Um, so it was um, it was really miraculous that she emerged after that um, and still had to spend a couple more weeks in the local hospital. But she ended up coming home and, and seemingly had made a full recovery. So for that, we were absolutely um, so grateful because it could have been very different.
0: Yeah, it it really could, and uh, you know, as as we discussed many years ago, um, the fact that you were told she might not survive the ambulance journey it means that long before that consultant was called in, she was critically ill. And yep. you know, really, the the reason she survived and what made the difference was your husband's tenacity. Wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. But again, you know that that was, I say, it was luck and not judgment, and yeah. it shouldn't be down to the fact that your parents, you know, are have got that um, ability to shout a bit louder and guys medically trained. So you know they probably listen. You know, it, he gets listened to more than I do, um, and and that is a sad sort of a sad reality. But um, the it is it is still a symptom that if you. If you are not shouting loud enough, um you will be d- ignored and dismissed. and and as a mother, I knew, I could see in Tilly's eyes. I knew that she was um in serious trouble. Um, but, you know, the nurses came and they did, and doctors looked and said, "Oh, we'll come back in a couple of hours." But nobody could tell me what was wrong with her beyond her having chickenpox. And I think the um, they were giving her two liters of fluid. She puffed up. She still wasn't weighing. Um, all these things that now you look back on and you—it's so obvious that she was, you know, very septic. Um, and and yet, at no point was that a
0: diagnosis. Um, it's yeah, it's it, it's it's frightening isn't it so so you get Tilly home and yeah. you kind of expect that she's just going to bounce back so what were those early months like what how did she begin to recover what 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 does real look like in this situation
2: yeah um well it's interesting because i think the overwhelming sense was that we were just so happy to have her and she was alive and um she was definitely delayed with her milestones so you know being genetically identical to her sister they'd always sort of done things at roughly similar times Um, and then it was very noticeable as Tilly was approaching that sort of period between six months and a year where they start to do a lot more things that um, she wasn't doing them um, as fast as Lucy was so uh, walking babbling you know, crawling, all of those things were delayed, but they weren't delayed to the point that anybody was worried. It was always, oh, she's just within the normal limits. So, you know, we're not worried about it. Um, but actually, when you look at it in comparison to her twin, who was doing things way earlier, you know, there were definitely signs that she was not developing um, as as quickly as as maybe she should. But again, we were not worried about it. We just thought, you know, She's here and, and she hasn't got any permanent physical disabilities, which was a real um, risk of, of her having sepsis. So that sort of gratitude got went a long way to kind of placating us, I guess. And it wasn't really until she started school that things then started to become much more apparent that the sepsis had really affected her her cognitively.
0: Yeah, and you, you're a teacher, aren't you, Mandy? Yes, so I am. Yeah. You, you'll you'll be very very close to this. So yeah. how, how did you start to notice the differences in her academic ability and school performance c- compared yeah. with um, compared with Lucy? And uh, you know, uh, perhaps sort of tell us how it's gone as she's gone through toward the end yeah. of her school career.
2: So when she started, I mean, they were sort of. You know they were August babies, so they were young anyway when they started reception. But Lucy was very much, um, you know, she was capable of uh, following instructions. She had an idea about time, as in, you know, she could, you know, uh, estimate and anticipate what was going to happen next. And um, Tilly wasn't at that level. Um, reading, writing uh, were all very, very delayed. Um, and we had an amazing uh, Senko at our primary school who knew about Tilly's sepsis and was, um, and was really proactive in making sure that her her needs were met. But I remember her having a meeting with me and saying, I'm not sure she's ever going to be able to count, you know, or read, because there were no, you know, those real basics um, that she should have had at sort of four or five. She wasn't even close to to meeting those those milestones. Um, so it was it was difficult really, to rationalize. Um, but she was really well supported and and sort of at, at school. But I think when we went to see the um we went to see the pediatrician, and with regards to our concern about her her learning delay, and it was very much um focused on physical development. You know, there was a little bit of, um cognitive stuff but not really and um, because physically she wasn't at that point you know sort of she was had caught up really in terms of being able to walk and talk and run and ride a bike and, and stuff um but the, it was the cognitive stuff where it was it was much more marked um and so when it came to looking at secondary schools um you know at this point tilly is functioning probably as a five-year-old in terms of her, her ability and um we were wondering, as was the Senko at school, whether mainstream was even an option for her. Uh, So that's how kind of how stark it was. And so we had to fight pretty hard to get her an EHCP, which is an educational health care plan. And that provides her with a level of support and protection, really, through her education that will guarantee that she's provided with um, the support that she that she needs and um so but that didn't come easy and and again the, if you've got dyslexia dyscalculia um, if you're diabetic, if you're epileptic, there are lots of things that are recognised and you can tick a box and you can say, this is what is wrong with my child, this is what they need. Whereas I think with sepsis, it's such a gray area that hasn't been looked into um, and it isn't recognised necessarily. Um, I think it probably is something that going forward now is is going to be uh, needing looking at because the, as you say, the numbers involved are huge and it will be affecting lots of children Um, just as it has Tilly, but maybe not um, as noticeable.
0: Yeah, when we spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mandy, you you told me something that I think is really stark and I think is important for our listeners to hear Mm -hmm. around GCSEs and the sort of different expectations at GCSEs. Can you briefly describe what's happening?
2: Sure, Sure. so Tilly's in a little nurture group at her amazing secondary school that has provided her with with really good support. So she's only doing six GCSEs, um, whereas Lucy is doing 11. They've just recently done their mock exams. So last week they were given an envelope with their results, and Lucy got seven eights and nines in her eleven GCSEs. Amazing. Um, Tilly has done six GCSEs, and she got ones and twos. So she got one in maths, one in English. Um, And this is a girl who has worked her socks off. Is a delight, loves school, attends um but fundamentally her brain has been so adversely affected by the sepsis and we have this amazing situation where we have a control with Lucy they've grown up in the same environment and they've got the same genetics and yet their profiles are at you know the two ends of the academic spectrum and I think to see it sort of um in black and white last week was actually I think Tilly was the first time that she felt um upset by it because she said mommy I worked really hard and she did but you know that she's she's starting from somewhere very very different to Lucy and I think that needs to be recognized Um, and and I think there needs to be more awareness within schools within um, special needs departments that actually children that have suffered from sepsis in the past are much more likely, I imagine, to have some kind of cognitive impairment as a result of that. And that needs to be flagged and and recognised.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And evidence from adults would make that totally unsurprising, but we haven't known this. And yeah. and I think it is really important. So um, yeah, I, I think there's the role of advocates like yourself charities like mm-hmm. us but do you think this is also around the government and and the NHS as a whole sort of working with schools and working with the education system to to sort of recognize this as a major problem
2: absolutely i think that you know as i said before if you've got you know diabetes you know it's it's a it's a recognized um disability and 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 things are automatically start get put in place when when that is, um, when that's confirmed. And yet, I think with sepsis, and I do, and I think as a parent, I'm probably guilty of it, of just being so relieved that she's here, that I haven't worried about it, I haven't maybe pushed, I haven't um, uh, done maybe as much as as I could have done, should have done, because we've just got that sense that we are so lucky to have her and and if somebody said to me when she was lying in ITU she'll survive but she's going to have these long-term learning disabilities I'd have taken that
0: of (laughs) course of course you
2: would yeah Um, but actually it it now gets to the point where the effects of on Tilly on her life um, how she's going to function as an adult that is all impaired quite quite significantly by the fact that she's had sepsis and um, she will she certainly will not be leaving home at 18 because she won't be able to live independently without um, our support for it will just take her she'll get there but it's going to take um, a lot more time and as a mother I have definitely had to put my career um, on the back burner and work part-time because she has needed a huge amount of extra, support to get her to where she is today um and where she is today is you know lots of people would, would not see that as a success but i think the fact she's stuck out mainstream education for five years in you know real adversity um i would i would argue that she she has been successful and and she will be but in her own time
0: yeah that i mean that's it's alarming and and touching in, in equal measure and and what, what about Lucy FMA what what are her aspirations?
2: Well it's, yeah I mean Lucy has being the youngest of four children has just gone under the radar sort of stealth like has not demanded much and um and yet she's coming out and just acing these these exams and she is now thinking that she might like to be a dentist like her daddy um <laughs> which uh... <laughs> I will we'll see how that how that goes. But, um, you know, she's definitely got high aspirations and and I'm sure if she puts her mind to it, we'll be we'll be able to to pursue those. Um, Whereas for Tilly, I think, you know, we're hoping that she will get a place at Yeovil College next year to study beauty therapy. But that is not a given. You know, she it's very unlikely looking at her grades. Um, So we're going to have to try and see if there's some special dispensation to get her in there, because I think she can probably maybe follow the course. But it's these um, arbitrary boundaries that we set in the educational system saying you must get a four in English and a four in maths in order to be able to do pretty much any job. Um, And I think that needs to be put into some context, really, in terms of children's experiences in life and and yeah
0: exactly I I was going to say it's it's about her life experience and the richness Mm -hmm. that that brings and you know when we discussed a couple of weeks ago you you told me her her empathy is off the scale Mm and it's um she's got skills in
2: bucket loads that would make her an amazing employee but she won't get to that first post even because they will look at you know, on paper, um, what she has achieved, and it doesn't look great. Um, but it's completely, if you're not reading it alongside her life experiences, at which point it, it becomes actually um, a huge achievement where where she's at now. But um, yeah, there's you know there's all sorts of societal problems that will um, will make it difficult for her to um, to function really.
0: Yeah, I, I mean. Uh, listeners won't need me to to highlight how stark this is and and how Mm -hmm. different two genetically identical twins Mm -hmm. can be as a consequence of an infection as a little one um mandy thank you so much for for raising awareness of post-sepsis syndrome in children because that's really what we're talking about here and i think we need to do so much more work in this space as a charity Just to remind listeners, we've got sepsis savvy resources, including PHSE approved lesson plans for school children of all ages. So maybe it's also about getting school children in there to advocate for their peers and their siblings. Absolutely. Um,
2: I think that awareness and making it something that people, you know, that they're familiar. And um, and I definitely think senkos, you know, need to have compulsory, there needs to be some mandatory training on sepsis um, as part of their um, qualifications. That's definitely something that could be could be looked at.
0: Oh, absolutely. Particularly when, mm-hmm. as we've learned from this report, um, sepsis is responsible for one in six deaths in children so you know how many survivors each year it runs into the thousands so mandy thank you once again I i think it's an incredible and really important conversation that we've just had and 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 thanks again to melissa for your contributions to this vital report that we've been talking about today and your ongoing campaigning with us That is all we've got time for today, but please do remember to head to our website at sepsistrust.org to access support or our e-learning resources for health professionals. And and finally, just very best wishes for the festive season from me and from the rest of the UK Sepsis Trust team. We will see you again in 2024.